Have you ever had the experience of coming to the end of a, a book or a TV series and wishing that there was more but the author has died or the TV series has been cancelled and so you know that nothing more is coming? Well, there is nothing to be added to the Bible. It is God's full and final revelation to us. And yet the story that the Bible tells continues. The Bible tells the story of all stories. And it is a true story. A story of God's great plan to save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. And though none of us are mentioned in the Bible, we are part of that plan. Luke begins the book of Acts by telling us that in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, uh, he, he had given a record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that tells us that the book of Acts and the story of the spread of the Gospel down to our own day is the story of all that Jesus continues to do and teach. And how is Jesus at work in the world today? By his Spirit and through his church. And so we have a reminder right at the beginning today why we need a series of sermons to help us think biblically about the church. It's been well said that a church may appear irrelevant and weak, but what we sometimes fail to consider is that the church is at the heart of God's plan for the world. A church may appear irrelevant and weak, and yet the church is at the heart of God's plan for the world. Is that how you think of church this morning? Not simply something that you, you go to or something you try and fit around your busy life uh, where it can slot in, but something that is at the heart of God's plan for the world. That might not be the way we would have done it. Yes, the church doesn't look that impressive, but God himself tells us that he has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What we are doing today, in the eyes of the world, it is foolish, it is weak, even in the eyes perhaps of some professing Christians, and yet it is what God has chosen to shame the strong. In fact, those of us who were at the John Wycliffe film during the week were, were reminded of this, because what did you have in the centuries before the Reformation? Well, you had a rich, powerful, outwardly impressive church you had a church that looked impressive by worldly standards, but in God's eyes it was corrupt, it was dead. But so often as we look at the church through, but so often we look at the world, at the church through the world's glasses. We look at the church through the world's glasses. Perhaps your attitude is, well, if, if there were more people, or if there were more people my own age, then I'd get involved more. And yet in God's eyes, faithful churches, however outwardly weak they might be, are at the centre of God's plans and purposes for the world. As the, the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians, the divine plan for this world is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. 
And it's often the very weakness of the church, the very thing that we are tempted to despise. It's in the very weakness of the church that the wisdom of God is made known. And so this series of sermons, like the book it's named after, has the aim of convincing you that you should invest your life in a local body of believers. And to encourage you that you can do that with confidence, that however outwardly impressive the church might seem, that it is at the centre of God's plans and purposes for the world. And that through it you are investing your life in something that will last forever. And in this final sermon in the series we come to another topic that I wouldn't necessarily have thought to preach on. uh, But one which we, we can't afford to ignore. And that is the topic of sending. Sending. Uh, which is one way that we get to play our part in the continuing, ongoing story of what God is doing in the world. What do I mean by sending? Well, we'll come to that in more detail later on. Uh, But to sum it up, we're, we're thinking about how the gospel continues to spread throughout the world and how it does that as God saves people and then sends them. But before we get into what that might look like in practice for us, we want to start with God himself and with his character as ascending God. So that it might be clear that what we're looking at today isn't simply man's idea about how to spread the gospel, but something that's rooted in the character of God himself. So firstly, this morning, we want to see our God is ascending God. Our God is ascending God. That's page two for Donna. When Jesus sends his disciples out into the world, what reason does he give for doing so? Well, we we read it earlier in John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus links his sending of the disciples into the world with the Father's sending of him. Why do Christians rejoice at the coming of Jesus into the world? Well, because as John reminds us in his first letter, words that we also read, the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. It might be a good verse for the boys and girls to learn. I think you could learn that, boys and girls. The Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Maybe, maybe try that this week. This year, Little's Christmas advertising has the line, A Christmas you can believe in. They are no doubt trying to draw attention to their low prices. Uh, But behind that advertising phrase seems to be the idea that the traditional Christmas story is unbelievable. The Son of God being born of a virgin, coming to earth to save us from our sins. In the eyes of little, it's all a bit far-fetched. You can't believe that, but, but we'll give you a Christmas you can believe in. So if you want real hope and joy this Christmas, you can find that hope and joy in the fact that Lidl's Brussels sprouts are cheaper than Tesco's. I don't know about you, but that doesn't really do much for me. Uh, But John, in his first letter, in those words we read earlier, is saying, here's something you really can believe in. 
Why? Because, he says, we were eyewitnesses. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. What is the Bible? What is the book in front of you this morning? What is this book open in the pulpit today? Well, in part, it is eyewitness testimony that the Father has sent his Son into the world. And when Jesus speaks about his sending of people into the world, he roots that in the fact that the Father had first sent him. Uh, Nor is this just just a a one-off. We see how central this is to Jesus' thinking. If we go back a few chapters to chapter 17, uh, and uh, our Lord says there, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then he, he, he says to the disciples in chapter 20, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When we think of the call to, to send, whether that's in sending money or sending people, we can often be reluctant. As individuals and even as churches, we can be tight-fisted, wanting to hold on to what we have or wanting to send as little as we can get away with. But God wasn't tight-fisted with us. He sent his best. He sent his only son. And he sent him to bless us. Why, why did God send Jesus into the world? Well, two, two verses that answer that for us. Firstly, John three seventeen. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or Acts 3.26, God, having raised up a servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God sent his Son to save us and to turn us from our wickedness. And that tells us that without Jesus, every single one of us is wicked in God's sight. And that every single one of us needs to be saved. So let me ask you this morning, are you saved? Are you saved? Have you come to the realisation that without Christ, you are wicked in God's sight? And that the same God who, who sent his son to earth will send you to hell unless you repent? That's one thing to to know that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. Uh, Because many, many unbelievers could tell us that that's why Jesus came into the world. He came to save us from our sins. Uh, But it is another thing entirely uh, to have been saved from your sins by putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And if you haven't yet done that, don't yet another Don't let another year end. In fact, don't let another day end without doing that. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus. So God sent his son. Jesus sent out his disciples. And God continues to send. And he sends people to bring the gospel. It wasn't that long ago that we looked at Acts chapter 13. And that's a very interesting passage about sending because verse 3 of Acts 13 says that the church sent Paul and Barnabas off on their first missionary journey. 
Whereas the next verse, verse 4, says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So were they sent out by the church or were they sent out by the Holy Spirit? Whereas both, it's the Holy Spirit working through the church. From Paul's first missionary journey down to the gospel coming to Scotland to the fact that you are in a church today with a minister preaching the gospel to you. It is all ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who sends people out to bring the gospel. Another example we could turn to is Romans 10, 15, where we have the question, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Preachers can't preach, or at least they shouldn't preach unless they are sent. And who sends them? Well, again, it's the Holy Spirit working through the church. Our God is a sending God. And the God who sent Jesus to bless us in turn sends us to bless others. And so, as we sang in Psalm 67, we, we are taught to sing, May God be gracious to us and bless us. Why? So that we can keep that blessing to ourselves, so that we can hoard that blessing. No, but rather uh, that we would do our bit so that his way would be known on earth and his saving power among all nations. God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. Think of the the Israelites singing that psalm for for so many hundreds of years, uh, praying that God would would use them to be a blessing to the nations and and how they, they would have uh, struggled to, to see exactly how that would have been fulfilled uh, on anything other than a small scale. Uh, and yet today we, we see so clearly how, how uh, the church of Jesus Christ is to be a blessing to the nations. God blesses us that we might bless others. The Gospels, in many ways, they're the story of the Father sending the Son. And then at the end of the Gospels, the Son sends out the disciples. At the beginning of the book of Acts, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And the rest of the book of Acts, the Spirit and the Church send men to take the Gospel to the nations. In Acts 8, the apostles send Peter and John to Samaria when they hear that people are being converted. Uh, We've already thought about Paul and Barnabas being sent on their first missionary journey, not to mention Paul's other missionary journeys. And and sending is really all over the New Testament. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, we read how Paul and Silas were willing to be left alone in order to send Timothy to Thessalonica to establish and exhort and encourage them in the faith. And then at the very end of Paul's life, uh, some of the most moving words in Scripture. He writes in 2 Timothy 4 about how he was almost completely alone, and yet he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Because for Paul, the strengthening of a congregation of God's people was more important to him than his own comfort. Our God is ascending God. And those who know him will surely not refuse to go when and where he sends them or begrudge sending others. So firstly, this morning, our God is ascending God. Uh, Secondly, and a lot more briefly then, 
we're reminded that we are here today because others were sent. And this is page six. Uh, We are here today because others were sent. If someone were to write the history of our congregation, where should they begin? Well, surely there's a sense in which the story begins 2,000 years ago, if not earlier. Because in a sense, our story begins with those who Jesus sends out from Jerusalem, who obeyed his command and who in turn sent out others. And they sent out others until eventually the gospel reached Scotland. And so if we feel reluctant when we hear the call for us to be a sending congregation, which is where we'll end up today. Uh, Think where we would be if in previous generations uh, believers in other countries had refused to be senders or, or refused to be sent themselves. If they had hoarded the blessings that God had given them, the gospel would never have reached Scotland. And then if we bring things a bit more up to date and look back at the last hundred years or so of this congregation, In that last century, every minister of this congregation has come from the Irish RP Church. The other week, one of my friends calculated that if all the ministers that the Irish RP Church had trained uh, but are currently serving elsewhere, if if they had all stayed in Ireland, then all the RP churches in Ireland would have ministers. But as it is, they don't. One man they trained is in Australia, one is in Canada, two are in America, and two are in Scotland. And as far as I know, no one has ever said, look, we spent time and money training these men, and we're not even getting the benefit of it. Quite the opposite. At their annual day of prayer last month, they asked for prayer requests from each Scottish congregation individually, which... uh, they don't do for their own congregations, but they prayed individually for Stranraer and for Stornoway, Glasgow, Airdrie, North Edinburgh. And my point there is that there's an attitude which says, let's train men for ministry and wherever God calls them, he calls them. And if they go elsewhere, we'll pray for them. And if we can, we'll financially support them as well. And on the subject of financial support, to bring things even more up to date, in the last seven years since I've been here, we as a congregation have literally received tens of thousands of pounds from uh, the American, but particularly uh, the Irish church, from both individuals and congregations. One congregation for the last few years has been giving us £6,000 a year uh, while they didn't need their months and it was rented out. Last month we were sent £10,000 from the trustees of the Larne congregation which closed several years ago. I don't think it's too much to say that the fact that we still have a church here open today, uh, the fact that we have a hall that's comfortable for church lunches, evening service, Bible studies and so on, these things are possible because God's people have sent money. Uh, And people have also come, uh, they've come here to help out, they've come on mission teams, they've come to paint. Churches have sent their deacons, they've sent their young people. We have been on the receiving end of so much. And we have so much to be grateful to God for, for what we have received at the hands of others. We are here today because others have sent 
But then thirdly and finally, let's seek by God's grace to be ascending congregation. Let's seek by God's grace to be ascending congregation. Being in receipt of so much is a tremendous blessing. But it brings with us both a danger and a responsibility. The danger is dependency. Now a sense of dependency for the Christian can be a good thing. Because we never want to forget that we are dependent on God. Being a rich congregation would bring the temptation to feel that we were self-sufficient. That, that our barns were full and that we could keep going indefinitely without God at all. Uh, but I think there is the danger uh, that having received so much, that we would always think of ourselves as a receiving congregation as opposed to a sending congregation, uh, which surely wouldn't be very healthy. So that's the, the danger. Uh, and the responsibility is, as Jesus puts it in Luke twelve forty eight, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We have received much, and so much will be expected of us. Let's remember as well that if churches and individuals are supporting us, that means there will be other works they can't support. And let's not aim simply to be self-supporting. Uh, that would be, 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 be an amazing thing if, if we didn't need any financial support from outside. But, but let's not aim simply to stop there. Because let's aim that we might in turn be able to support others. Uh, one example that, that, that ties in well with this sermon over the last few, few weeks I've become aware of a group of people elsewhere in Dumfries and Galloway who might potentially be interested in forming a new RP church. I, I can't go into details at this point, but what an exciting thing that would be for us as a congregation to be involved in. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why, why it may not happen, but, but humanly speaking one of the, the big limiting factors is money. Because the group wouldn't be big enough to support their own minister, at the start at least. But if we were both self-supporting and being able to bring in a bit of a surplus, it might be possible for us to, to take them on board as a daughter congregation. Now of course, God isn't limited by our lack of resources. But how big is your vision do you think of this congregation as one which, which will always be in need of support from elsewhere? Or, or one which might actually, in time, be able to support new works elsewhere in our region? Uh, I know some might say, well, we need to be realistic here. Uh, I, and we do. Uh, but, but we also need to be obedient. Uh, we need to play our role and leave the rest to God. And our role involves not being tight-fisted with God. In the current financial climate, there is perhaps more of a temptation than ever to hold back in your giving. Uh, not to give back to God at least 10% of what he gives to you. And there will be particular temptations that people in all churches across the board are, are facing right now. 
perhaps uh, some have been tithing, perhaps you've been tithing, but as your income has increased in line with inflation or near to it or related to it, the amount that you gave hasn't, which means that what you now give is, is less than 10% of your income. Or perhaps you've never done what God commands it in Malachi 3.10 and brought the full tithe to him. Perhaps there's something you felt convicted about, but you feel that you couldn't start now. Not in the current climate. And yet not to return to God. At least a tenth of what he gives is a serious thing. And in fact, that's the context in Malachi chapter 3. It's... it's Economically, th- things were going disastrously well, but, but God says you need to fix first things first. Uh, will man rob God? Uh, he says, yet you're robbing me, says God. Uh, but you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, the Lord says, that there may be food in my house. We may well never be a rich congregation. But let's make sure that, that as we begin a new year, we are bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. Uh, and who knows what God will do with it. The little boy brought his lunch to Jesus and Jesus fed the 5,000 with it. What an amazing thing that would be to witness. But it wouldn't happen, have happened if the little boy had hoarded his food. And it's the same with our giving. We think, well, you know, if, we all, if, if we're all tithing, you know, it's still not going to add up to a huge amount. But our role is to be obedient and God can do anything with that. God doesn't need our money. The, the cattle on a thousand hills are his, but he does call us to be obedient. And what we do with our money shows where our hearts are at. And if opportunities to see new churches burst in our region are hampered by lack of money. Uh, may it not be because we here are being uh, disobedient or happy to, to, be, to be dependent or, or tight-fisted. Being a sending congregation, it's more than about giving money, uh, but it is important. So sending money, but also sending people. I think we, we should want to have it in our DNA as a congregation that losing people from the church isn't always a bad thing if it, there's a sense in which we are sending them somewhere else that they might be a blessing. It, it is a sad thing to see a good-sized congregation of God's people who, who are reluctant at the thought of even sending one or two people to somewhere that is more need of them. I saw a quote the other week by the missionary organisation AsiaLink, which said the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. The mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. And in fact, I've been told that when the the Trinity RP Church in Belfast was built back in the the 80s or or whenever it was, that they they deliberately didn't make it massive because they wanted to have the mindset that when when they got to a certain size, they would send out people to plant a new church. Coming back to what we were thinking about at the beginning today, A worldly approach to the church wants to have as many people and as much money as possible. And it becomes about empire building so easily. Whereas surely in Christ's eyes, 
greatness is seen not in how much we can accumulate but in how much we can give because it's not about building our empire it's about building Christ's kingdom and so our goal as a church should be to invest spiritually in people for however long they're here so that if they do move on in in a year or two or, or five or ten that they do so as more mature Christians who've been given the opportunity to serve and who've grown as a result and then we'll send them on with our blessing rejoicing to see how God will use them elsewhere and particularly for our young people If they grow up and move away, let's work it and pray that as they do so, they would be going to other parts of Christ's vineyard where they can use there what they've learned here as to how to serve. Some challenging words that I read back at the end of the summer and they stayed with me are that we must be willing to lose people from our congregation if that is better for the growth of the gospel. We must be willing to lose people from our congregation if that is better for the growth of the gospel. And so as individuals and as churches, let's not be like Ebenezer Scrooge, mean, tight-fisted, small-minded, holding on to what we have rather than joyfully sharing it. Sending people doesn't always mean them moving permanently away. It might mean not begrudging your minister or elder spending time helping a new church plant in the region get off the ground, for example, and giving a day a week to it or, or whatever. It, it might mean what, what we did a few years ago in ha- having uh, young people over uh, for a weekend uh, using the resource that God has given us in a church hall for them to come have fellowship and be taught from God's word and then send them back to their home churches with perhaps a slightly better grasp of some key doctrines and having seen a bit more of the church in a country that they're not used to. We as a church might not get much out of something like that. Financially and in terms of energy expended, we might not have a lot to show for our investment. But keeping the bigger picture in view means that we're investing in people for the sake of God's kingdom, not for the sake of our bottom line. The big picture today is that our God is a generous God and our God is a sending God and we don't need Ebenezer Scrooge to remind us that being miserly will make us miserable because being miserly with what God has given us would be such a contradiction freely you have received our Lord says freely give our God is a sending God What we have today is a result of the fact that others have sent and been sent. And so let's seek by God's grace to be a generous, sending people. Amen. Well, as we've seen today, we as churches are to reflect what God is like. And we're going to praise our generous, sending God now in the words of Psalm 112. Psalm 112, the B version on page 280. Psalm 112, the B version on page 280. And just as you're turning there, I suppose one other thing to add, that 
you know, it, it is tempting to say, well, I'll wait until I have a certain amount of money, then I'll be generous. Or, or we'll wait as a congregation until we are in a certain place in terms of, of people or, or, or money, and then we'll be generous. But if we build that into our DNA right from the beginning, then, then we're always giving, we're always looking outwards. So Psalm 112b, page 280, verse 2 if God has blessed us with spiritual or material wealth, it's so that in verse 3 we might give and freely lend, and so that in verse 5 with open hand we might offer to the poor. Miserliness will make us miserable, but generosity will bring joy. Miserliness will make us miserable, whether that's holding back our, our, our money, holding back ourselves, holding back our involvement, holding back our love, but generosity will bring joy. Psalm 112b will stand and sing praise.